This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right, welcome back to Transparency, everyone. Uh, we are delighted to be joined uh, once again by Phil Illy. Uh, Phil's got a book that either just dropped or is about to, uh, based on when this ultimately released uh, releases. And uh, we're yeah excited to have you back and talk more about uh, your uh, kind of central thesis, which is that auto heterosexuality is the uh, kind of uh, an umbrella that encompasses both the uh, male phenomenon of autogynephilia and uh, this more lesser known and more uh, hotly disputed uh, autoandrophilia in females. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Has the book been released now or is it just about to? What's the release date? The release date is June 13th. Um, I've started posting it on Twitter just because I want it. I wrote it so that people would read it. And so I'm making it publi- publicly accessible you know, to a large degree, even before the, the release date, just because I I just feel it's so urgent that the most common cause of gender dysphoria, I mean, in my perspective, this is the most common cause. And, and that if that is the case, it's important that people know that as soon as possible, because there's people making irreversible medical decisions every single day. And so I just want the people that are making those decisions to be as fully informed about their condition. Mm-hmm. That's a, an on, honorable goal. And, and, you know, my, my hope is that, you know, those that have transitioned when they, because I, I agree with you. Um, and I think that has been well established in literature that, that, that autosexuality, I mean, wasn't, you're, you're coining that term, but it, that autosexuality is the primary driver for transition. But I think the vast majority of transitioners don't know that. And I just hope that people don't, when they come to that realization, because I think that reckoning is coming, when they come to that realization, I hope there aren't people that regret their choice. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think there will be some. Um, but I also hope when that happens that they keep in mind that if it was autosexuality causing their decision to transition, that they were being driven by strong internal forces. And, and so it's understandable that they made those decisions. And it's just that it wasn't it was a societal failing that it wasn't being explained to them clearly. I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had a lot of similar thoughts when we went into this uh, project is when we do this, it's like we're, we're exposing a lot of things that people don't want to think about. And and I was kind of weighing that as like, you know, we could we could potentially save people from making decisions, not save them, not to be all savioristic about it, but, you know, like putting information in front of people, either, you know, it can be helpful for those who have not gone, gone down that path and don't necessarily need to or want to have more information or should have had more information before they made, uh, you know, kind of irreversible decisions. And then uh, on the other hand, there is that concern. It's like, are we talking about things that could potentially trigger people, you know, to their entire kind of like their sense of self and their, you know, uh, you know, very major life decisions and you know bodily choices that they've made. Uh, like, like it's 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 a, it's a tough thing to to, to grapple with. Um, is like, but ultimately, I decided that, you know the truth and and the and the, uh, the honesty of all of this is more uh, more important than pot- and more important than potentially saving feelings that have already been. Um, right 
or yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of times people like Ann Lawrence, for example, um, would have, you know, said, you know, I would have made this decision over and over again, you know, knowing what I know now, you know, like, and, and then there are others who are like, oh, had I known that this is what was driving it, I wouldn't have done this. So the more information, the better, because it can, yeah, go either way. And, and type the type of information that you're offering, Phil, you know, is so nuanced and just matter of fact, you're not bringing a lot of emotion into it. You're just examining it as a phenomenon. And I think that is so needed in this whole thing because the concept of AGP gets used in one of two ways. It either gets used as a slur, um, you know, th that it's such a shallow understanding of what the phenomenon is, and it ends up getting used as a slur towards trans women. And then trans women respond to that like, well, no, I'm not just a sick pervert, and so AGP therefore doesn't exist. And and I think for decades now, these warring camps have sort of have been warring over a definition of what it is that is so cartoonish mm. and distorted and super and and shallow that it it's. I think that's why it's never resolved. You know, this this battle's been going on for decades, and so I think what you're bringing and what. Dr. Bailey has tried to bring to the conversation in the past too, but writing his book is a very just sort of cool, rational examination of a phenomenon. Yeah. And it's, I agree with you that it has been the version of it that people use in discourse when they're talking about autogonophilia is so cartoonish and wrong. Like when I first saw it described by feminists, I didn't have any idea that it described me. Um, <laughs> And, you know, so I went many more years without, you know, taking that possibility seriously. Um, and, yeah, and, and people have this simplistic two-dimensional version of autogonophilia that they talk about. But it, it's really complex because it's ultimately a kind of love. And, you know, when you're trying to put love into words, it can be very hard. Because <laughs> it's one of those, like, squishy human feeling things. And so... Yeah, that's why um, I tried in my book to be nuanced and describe it accurately and all the, the ins and outs and the subtleties to it, you know, as best I could. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, people, uh, we've got a difficult time or, or people are having a difficult time accepting that there is a female equivalent of this because I think they're thinking of it in the very uh, uh, hyper, hypersexual target oriented kind of and this is where I think I I, I disagree with Bailey on, on this category or in this in this topic a lot. I think the crux of it being is so he's saying that autoandrophilia can't exist in females because paraphilias don't exist in females. And I'm wondering if we're on that basis making a categorical error. Is that um, you know when you describe autogynophilia, a lot of it is it's it's much more about you know, it's like this this romantic pull, right? It's it's not just a sexual act. It's not just sexual behaviors. It's a, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, other feelings tied into it, right? And so I think if you're going to look at that, at the equivalent in females, it's again going to look much less sexual and it's going to look much more um, sentimental and romantic because that's kind of how female sexual orientation works, right? And so it's not going to look, that, so I think, yeah, you're not going to find autoandrophilia if you're looking for a paraphilia. No, you're not, because it's not going to look like that. It's going to look like a desire to recreate what you are attracted to internally. And and that is, you're going to find that in both sexes, 
well, you're going to find auto-sexuality, I believe, in both sexes, but it's going to look differently between males and females. And that's yeah. where Bailey keeps saying, well, if it looks differently, it's not the same thing. Well, it's like, yeah, well, male and female sexuality is not the same thing. Um, so, it really depends on what the mechanism for it is, right? Because the mechanism right. for paraphilia is it's a target location error. So it really rests on whether or not auto-sexualities are a target location error, or is there another mechanism for why a sexuality would um, inverse on itself? So... The, the target location error theory, it, it's an ideological theory about where autogynophilia and other sorts of attraction to being come from. Um, I think that theory is correct, but we don't need that theory to um, to say that these sexual interests clearly exist, you know, and and that they're not normal as well. You know, they're in a small percent of people. And so since they're not normal and they're kind of uncommon and they're different from like procreative sexuality, they probably do count as paraphilias. And, um, but yeah, I, I think that something that, um, man, it's hard to just say Aaron. <laughs> so yeah, some, some Aaron T was saying is, is that basically male and female sexuality are different. Right. And, this is this is something I think about with the subject of autoandrophilia in that just as male and female heterosexuality are different and also homosexuality is different between the sexes, so too we should expect similar differences for autoheterosexuality. Just like the, the increased um, amount of sentiments that, um, yeah, Aaron T was pointing out because... And I can't, I wish I thought to write that into the book. I, like once, once he mentioned that to me, I was like, oh, you're so right. And I can't believe I didn't put that in the book. Yeah, sorry, go on. No, little, no, done, little post, you're going to be putting a little, little insert, little post-it note or a bookmark into every copy of the book I, now before it goes out. I just out. suggested a, you know, a, 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 a revision too here, here shortly. Because I think, I think, uh, yeah, we're going to, we, we need to do a lot more uh, yeah, uh, studying of, of female sexuality and um, yeah. So anyway, it could, it could, could yeah, there could be a need for a, for a revision uh, down the line. Um, uh, but I mean, the, the, the examples that you did choose were quite useful in that they, they very clearly highlight the, um, you know, the, the female equivalent of autogynophilia, you know, with, with Lou Sullivan and uh, Mr. G, um, et cetera. It's, you know, they're very, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mr. G's such a badass. Like, <laughs> seriously, if uh, anyone wants to see the exploits of this fella, you can, you can read Robert Stollard's Splitting, A Case of Female Masculinity. It's this thick book that is just basically a transcript between him and this one patient. It's about <laughs> this one case. And my God, this this female. I I consider this person autoandrophilic. Stoller thought, you know, they were they were homosexual because he didn't have the category of autoandrophilia at the time. But this this guy would like shoot people for sleeping with his girlfriend. He like drag race, run over people with like a motorcycle. Like first time he like <laughs> drove a car to school. It was one he stole. I <laughs> think like. <laughs> Just absolute toxic masculinity. Um, <laughs> a tr definitely, a, definitely a troubled, uh, troubled kid. Yeah, it's a very entertaining read. Like that. Yeah, I just wanted to spotlight Mr. G for a second because that dude is wild. And <laughs> and yeah, there's those other examples like Lou Sullivan. That 
thankfully he he shared his diaries so that and people have gone through them and picked out basically the greatest hits and compiled them into various books and so we can see firsthand now the inner thoughts of someone that is autoandrophilic and feels that strong sentiment towards being a man and specifically being a gay man you know in his case yeah yeah one one thing that so so uh yeah reading your book uh, when you were so i guess i'll just come out and say it is as reading your book i realized that i am autoandrophilic um uh in, in the sense of the, of this this um very very uh kind of uh very personal very uh as long as i can remember uh drive pull to to be who i was attracted to um so mm-hmm. so not being able to differentiate um well obviously so when i was young and you know i would look up to um uh, to 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 men or, or or older boys or whatever, and it was I just looked up to them. I thought they were cool. I wanted to be them, right? And I had you know I, I had this innate sense of myself as you know I was supposed to be male, right? So it wasn't like I was. I wish it was you, I'll, but it was it was very much like I was just automatically self-identifying and projecting that I will grow up and I'll be like you, you know. Um, but then when I got older, post puberty, then it became okay, I'm attracted to these people, but more stronger, more, the, the stronger feeling was that I wanted to be them. So it, there was the same feeling of, of uh, being attracted to uh, um, and, and envying, but the envy was much stronger than the external attraction. Um, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Makes um, complete sense. Yeah. And so, um, but but where for a long time I didn't believe that I was autoandrophilic when I learned what it was in comparison to the male equivalent. And also like reading your book, it was it was those case studies that made me go, I see, I don't relate with this. It's not for me, it's never been um very, very sexual. It's never it's always been very sentimental and very um abstract and romantic. And like I don't it's it's really um I don't know. I guess I'm I'm I am not, or at least pre testosterone. I was never a very sexually driven person, and so that could have a lot to do with it. I was a pretty low low sex drive naturally, so I think that could have a lot to do with it. With with me not identifying with, you know, the the Lou Sullivans or the you know like being turned on by putting on men's boots and jeans, and it's like I could never no that nothing like that has ever ever happened to me. But like the, um, but yeah, it was just much more a, a, a more subtle kind of. Um, yeah, an inability to, to 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 differentiate who I wished I was and who I was attracted to, but but the sex was just so, yeah, it's, it's so far removed. I don't know. It's it's hard to explain this without because it is it is a sexual orientation, but I don't know. It was very. Um, I guess we can get more into like the sexual details because I did obviously have the thing where I was engaging in heterosexual acts, but in my brain I was a man in that situation. But it was more like it was just how I could enjoy myself in that scenario i wasn't like i'm not turned on by the idea of being a man it was just like in that scenario sex is better i don't know like i could deal with my anatomy and whatnot if i imagined that um i don't know so so um yeah again that the the concept of being aroused by being a man that that i never had that there was never any auto sexuality um Anyway, I'm, I've been rambling now because I'm. Yeah, but, uh, that's why. That's why uh, I'm so fascinated by and interested in in just having conversations about our experiences and the phenomenon. With, but I'm I'm really careful, trying to be careful to not collapse any of that down into labels just yet, because what am I trying to say? 
I mean, especially in, I think maybe my, my caution is as a, as a clinician, I have to be careful about, I don't want to promote um, ideas of diagnoses that haven't yet been well-established and proven. I mean, I, I can't do that professionally, but, but I'm definitely, but at the same time, I know that we, we develop new, new concepts. I mean, definitions of different phenomenon change all the time. So I'm definitely open and curious about the conversation and never want to shut down that the conversation of the phenomenon. And I'm very like, like Micah Bailey, when he talked about your book recently for um, a webinar with, um, with fair, you know, propped up your book, Phil, and said it was a fantastic read. Um, even though he, he, he disagrees with some of the, some of the hypothesis, but I think like him, I'm very open-minded and, and very interested in having the conversation and really unpacking these experiences, at, you know, in the, in the nuance and detail that we've experienced them. And because, but with any diagnostic label, it's so tricky because there's so many overlapping there's so many overlapping symptoms or experiences across different diagnostic categories. And so just because we have some experiences in common doesn't necessarily mean they belong in the same diagnostic category. And as you're talking, Aaron, about that sentimentality of, of you really identifying with men and having that sentimental feeling, I mean, how how is that different from any man who really looks up and has role models and really admires and has sentimental feelings and and admires the men in their life? Because um, I'm not male. Like I right. was making, yeah. there was a confusion there, you know? Yeah. Right. And also you from? mentioned like it being hard to tell, differentiate between liking them and wanting to be them. Like mm -hmm. that the wanting to be part was stronger, but that both were there and it was hard to tell what was going on. And that's the question, right? Is what is the mechanism for that wanting to be the man? I mean, for me, I think it was different, but I think where there's some overlap between the autosexuality and what I think of as like the homosexual type, I think there's a lot, once it becomes gender dysphoria, I think there's a lot of similarities. I think maybe the impact of this incongruence or the gender nonconformity is maybe, is maybe where these two things converge. And this is something that I discovered talking to Debbie Hayton or reading some of her description of her, of her experience is that as it becomes gender dysphoria, it seems to start to, to converge into a very similar experience. And one of the things that it converges on is the development of like this internal, almost like a splitting of self that there, there's this creation of this kind of fantasy self that we become emotionally attached to. And, and that happened to me, though, though I don't think it was autosexuality. I think like I grew up in, if, it, if you have either of you watched, Little House on the Prairie. I mean, is that? Oh yeah. So back I mean, that day. that was yeah. that was common back in the day on TV and at least in North America. And but I basically grew up on the set of Little House on the Prairie. Like my childhood was a very sheltered small town farming community childhood. Not that anything bad never happened or anything, but I mean, even a Little House on the Prairie, there's lots of different narratives and, but my worldview was very narrow and I really, and I loved that culture. Um, I felt safe and contained and I valued that culture, but I grew up, you know, watching the show, let's say little house on the prairie or girls in my community having crushes on the girls. And I had a zero framework for homosexuality within that worldview. 
And so I just grew up having crushes on like Laura Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie and feeling sentimental to the guys that, you know, she might be dating in the show or, or girls were dating the guys. And it's like, oh, I'm so drawn and, and falling in love with these girls. I want to be what they're, what they're drawn and attracted to. So I, I really think that was my primary driver is I just want to, I value my culture. I want to live within my culture. I want that kind of life. I'm drawn to these girls. They're drawn to guys. And I think subconsciously that was my primary driver is I just, I want to be the thing that the girls I'm falling in love with are going to be reciprocating that attraction and tried to do that to the best of my ability. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's the kind of typical homosexual type. I just wanted to be what I was attracted to. I wasn't trying to attract others. You know, yeah. that wasn't, that wasn't the motivation, you know? So there is like a, there is a kind of a sexual driver, but it's not like we're all just perverts. Like it's this very deep, I think, unconscious drive, right? It's not, sure. I think, I think the cartoonish version of all of these things is we're all just perverts and it's all just a surface level getting our rocks off. Right. Like it's, but these are very deep internal drivers that, are complicated complicated and they're about sexuality but they're also about romantic love and yeah and, and it's, it's powerful like, yeah they're deeply woven into our psychology too you know heterosexuals tend to have a particular way of thinking that is yeah. different from homosexuals and it's just because you know males and females have these different optimal reproductive strategies so evolutionarily there's different male and female psychologies and then the development of sexual orientation seems to develop along with those things and so yeah sometimes like with homosexuality um people feel more comfortable just living as the other sex and, mm. and like you were describing growing up in a, like a farm community how you you wanted to be basically be in the social role that made sense for being attracted to girls yeah right and and, and that was like in an assimilating like in, a way of integrating in into that social network which is a very I consider that the that seems more of like the homosexual ideology sort of thinking, you know, whereas like the other ones just about like, man, I really want to be that thing. And I don't care if it makes me socially a homosexual afterwards, after transitioning, like I really want to be that thing. Mm -hmm. That that is very that uh, just that just occurred to me is a very distinct uh, distinction between the two is. So homosexual trans it's like a lot of the, the the motivation is to be what you know you're, you're to to be what you're to to attract what you're attracted to, whereas with the uh, auto heterosexual transition, you're consciously making yourself unappealing to the sex you should be attracted to, right? It's very yeah. almost it, it, one is pragmatic, the other is very counterintuitive <laughs> and not at all pragmatic. I just want to throw right. in. I just want to throw in. Like I think, I think people really underestimate. Like the vast majority of people are heterosexual, have a typical sexuality, and I think they really underestimate the degree to which sexual orientation drives social behavior. <laughs> I agree you know, 100%. like like when yeah. you when you when you're typical and everyone else is behaving the same way, it, it it's like the fish that in the water that doesn't recognize it's in the water, right? It it, it just our societies get built around this mm -hmm. behavior in a way that it's like that's just normal, that's just the way it is, and I think don't see it for that reason because it is typical and it's mirrored everywhere. But so much of our society and social interactions are driven by our 
heterosexual sexual orientations. And I think it only it's only when a person has an atypical sexuality and that driver doesn't seem to fit into how our society is structured that it be that it becomes highlighted and as a problem. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I love really wanted to talk about with you, uh, Phil, is a uh, uh, meta meta attraction. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm going to keep bringing this back to me because I've obviously had this realization recently, and I'm just now uh, kind of kind of being uh, uh, out and open about it. But one of the one of the things that uh, uh, made me again not believe that I was uh, auto androphilic is because I do not have, or at least not consciously, I've examined this thoroughly. Uh, I do not I do not believe that I have metasexuality i don't um i was recently listening to you uh your conversation with uh uh corinna and and uh, nina on heterodorks um where you guys were talking about you were, you were describing metasexuality and this um experience of um uh like like the, the other person is um like kind of kind of you know most much much of their appeal is to uh you know just to to, to be to, to feed you back what you want to be like to, to, to validate, you know, your, your sense of self as either male or female. And, and that's much of the sexual appeal towards the, um, uh, uh, the opposite no, to, towards the same sex. Um, and, and you guys also said like uh, that, I think Nina said something about like, you know, where, where does, you know, just basically losing yourself in, you know, attraction to this other person's body. Where does that, where does that come from? And you're basically like, so, so that's okay. So when it comes to, um, again, I'm going to, I guess I can't really do this without oversharing is that's how I experience, uh, sexual attraction to women is I completely like, I'm, I, I'm not conscious of myself. It's very much very target driven and very, um, uh, yeah, just, just very much obsessed with her body, you know, like it's not, it's not, has nothing to do with me, um, which is, which which is weird, right? If, if, if it's auto-sexuality, that shouldn't happen. Um, and then my attraction to men was, again, it wasn't target-oriented. I never really cared that much about men's bodies. They didn't really appeal that much to me. Um, but they just were the bodies of the people I was attracted to. Um, and then, yeah, anyway, I'm not sure where I'm going with this other than other than I feel like I fit fit all the molds of the the auto androphile or the auto heterosexual but then my sexuality shifted with testosterone and became gynephilic and very very external very um yeah, yeah not at all meta i guess is the only way i can uh i can say this right Thoughts. yeah it's 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 i think from the inside it's hard to tell apart meta attraction from conventional allosexual attraction and so yeah, I'm kind of ag agnostic about like in your case what what's going on, but um, I I will say that like from what you described, your auto androphilia is much has always been stronger than your allo androphilia, yeah. And so yeah. th that side of you, I would expect to win out in like the inner conflict of of these two selves. I would expect your your auto androphilic self to be the one that is mostly in charge of your self system and driving your thinking and behavior in terms of mating um what well, yeah and, and that does kind of jive with uh, with my my lost attraction to men uh like like that when i lost that that feeling of and after i transitioned i lost that feeling of envy toward men and i simultaneously lost attraction to them but i still have autoandrophilic dysphoria 
right? And so, so I think I think you're right. I, th I think my my antrophilia is entirely auto. Like, like I'm the only man I want, sort of not to be weird, but you know, like it's like I fulfilled that. I guess you're the most important man in your life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, my my only allosexuality is uh, a, a gynophilic. And and again, from every perspective I've examined in my brain, it's entirely um, not meta and genuine. So. Right. Um, well, well, something I want to say is that like meta, it, sometimes people consider it not genuine attraction, but for someone that, for someone that's particularly predisposed to auto heterosexual meta attraction, they wouldn't have any way of knowing that it's different from the other type of attraction because they don't have the conventional heterosexual attraction to a, a degree where they'd have something to compare it to. And so that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I, I would love if meta attraction was studied more because I think it's a major contributor to bisexuality in, in males. It's, I think it's, it's one of the most common reasons that males have sex with other males. And, um, and I, I think it's a smaller proportion of why, of, you know, females interest in other females, but I think it that metagynophilia does happen to some autoantrophilic females and make them bisexual where they wouldn't be otherwise. And I actually want to read a, a beautiful anecdote of this that I was just uh, just saw on my Twitter, and uh, I think she might be a mutual of all of ours. Uh, but Maggie Oats and Mag on Twitter, yeah, um, yeah. So she's uh, uh, she's someone else who's realized that her her dysphoria uh, is is autoantrophilic as well, and she just posted this thread today. I'm going to read it just for people who. You know, the, the Mike Bailey's out there who don't believe that this exists. But uh, uh, the, um, so she says, I want to talk about uh, my uh, pseudo bisexuality. I knew I had feelings for females and males, but by age seven or eight, and I had started to conceptualize myself mentally as a male early on. Due to this, all of my relationships were experienced through the lens of my male identity. I've always sought out relation I've always sought out relationships where my masculinity would be validated or I viewed myself as the boyfriend even if in secret parentheses at one point in middle school I told a girl that I liked her but that I would wouldn't make a move because I would only date you if I were a guy uh, I was still living as a female at this time. I've spent time wondering if this is internalized homophobia, but I don't believe it is. I had that thought as well uh, at one point. Uh, I have zero sexual interest in any FF relationships. I, on I only am attracted to females if I am able to view myself as male in relation to them. By 18, I recognized this and that I had been using women to accommodate my masculinity. I then stopped dating women because I believed this was unfair to them. I still have strong feelings for women, but only in the context of a male-female relationship in which I am the male. To illustrate the more masculine... To illustrate, the more masculine I'm able to be around X woman, the more I am attracted to her, the more I'll pursue her. I can, I can feel, oh, I can feel it turn a switch in my brain towards women. The desire and attraction to my own masculinity can sometimes outweigh X woman's physical appeal. I might not be attracted to X at first until I learn that I can be more masculine around her, and that's a good dynamic feeling for myself. If I ever knew that X was attracted to me as a female, i.e. she views me as a female, it would kill feelings for her entirely or instantly. Like, right. Yeah. That, that is one hundred like that is pseudo that, that is pseudo bisexual. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And she experienced it from the like she said, like six or seven when she first started having crushes because she already had developed this male sense of self 
adolescence itself mm -hmm. prior to actual sexual awakening. That's why I think it's it's much more about sexual orientation than kink, you know, or fetish, essentially. Yeah. Sorry, right. I went on another bit of a sidetrack there with why why I conceptualize it uh, thus, but yeah. But no, that I'm glad you. I I saw the beginnings of that thread earlier and wanted to follow it up. I but I didn't get around to it yet, so I'm kind of glad you read that because I was gonna get around to reading it. Um. Yeah, it's that is a good example of how someone can think of themselves as male in their brain from a very young age, and then, it, you know, caused by autoandrophilia, and thus the only type of sexuality that makes sense to them is a heterosexual relationship, but it's where they play the cross-gender role. Right. And yeah, that I think that's another another great anecdote in, in support of the idea that, you know, females can be autoandrophilic and experience metagynophilia. We had a, um, and th this is really solidified, uh, the, the theory that I had, um, uh, uh, that have been brewing. Um, so because because female sexuality is so dynamic driven, uh, I kind of had this sense that um, a lot of stone butch, and we, we touched on this, a lot of stone butch identities are the result of autoandrophilia that manifests as what entirely feels like genuine gynophilia. Um, and, uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Then we had... Um, uh, 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 Laura, an AGP on, who basically had that exact same experience I described, but the male version, you know, she at a very young age conceptualized herself as female, realized that this was shameful. And the only way that she could um, kind of self-conceptualize as as female was to be attracted to boys. Like that was the only thing that would kind <laughs> of like to, to keep to keep the the what we now know as autogynophilia a secret. It was like, I can, you know, I can have crushes on boys because that'll be the female, me, me female doing that, you know? Uh, and then because that started at such a young age, the, the androphilia became the actual dominant uh, 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 sexuality. Now, I didn't, and I, I feel like that, I'm almost positive that that happens in um, uh, in a lot of, of butch identifying lesbians. I think that there's there's obviously, definitely the, the, the proper HSTS female, Aaron, I think you hit fit that bill, but I think that there's also that um, that version of what I would have been if I wasn't so dysphoric about my anatomy. I would have done that. I would have pursued women to accommodate or to, to accentuate my sense of self as a male, but I found female anatomy so repulsive that I couldn't do that. But I think a lot of autoandrophilic uh, females do that and it's genuine and it, like that the gynophilia uh, becomes genuine. And I was reading a paper uh, that you sent me, Aaron, uh, recently about, um, or you, I think you sent it a while ago, but I was reading it recently thoroughly and it's about butch identity formation. And they were actually saying that in a lot of cases, the masculine gender identity develops first and the sexual, the gynophilic sexual orientation is an extension of the masculine sense of self. Now they don't talk about autoandrophilia, but that to me is what that is. It's like you've you've developed a sense of self that is male, that is masculine, and you in your sexual orientation develops as an extension of that. Um, I think that's probably quite common in uh, same-sex attracted women, but isn't not that, men. Isn't that true of development in general, though? I mean, a little a little boy might act like a ma masculine little boy before he ever develops an attraction to other two girls. But he's male, right? Like yeah. That but is, I think sexual orientation in general kind of kind of plays out that way, though, doesn't it? 
that we're not we're not overtly sexual as little children and yet i right. do think i do think pre if we can call this sort of pre-sexual orientation because it feels creepy to say kids have a sexual Proto. orientation but but kids do like what we were talking about the development of social behavior kids do fall within the development of sexual behavior according to their sexual orientations even though their sexual orientation hasn't fully developed yeah and it usually goes in a more direct route right uh yeah then it what, is, what it, I, one of the things I've always described and what I think is happening in a lot of auto androphiles. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I can see, I, it's so easy because I can see both sides of it. Right. I mean, what you're saying makes sense, but I can also see sort of counter arguments for it, but that's what makes the conversation so rich. But I have met, yeah. you know, a lot of butch lesbians over the years. And one thing that really fascinated me about the butch femme subculture is how it was it's a very romanticized version of male-female dynamics. It's like right out of like 1950s dating books. And that always frustrated me about it because I, when I was growing up developing my sense of masculinity, it was based on the men in my life. Um, whereas a lot of which lesbians seem to model themselves after a type of masculinity that it's almost like a nostalgic version version of masculinity yeah either the rebel james dean or the 1950s um the 1950s family man like it, it, there's these very very stereotypical uh types of masculinity they're very kind of nostalgia and romanticized versions of masculinity it's so it, they always seemed a little bit out of step with how actual men were behaving in our society yeah so, something that uh, um I've been thinking about as we've been having this conversation is that um, it, it br really brings up how it can be hard to tell apart, um, you know, the same sex attraction that that is ultimately caused by meta attraction versus the conventional same sex attraction. And th this means that like in reality, these, these sexual minorities that, that experience same sex attraction they they're in the same communities and subcultures and but they have a different cause of their same-sex attraction and mm -hmm, it really mm -hmm. shows how um um something i argue in my book is that uh, when it comes to gender-based sexuality there's two types of queer two main types of queer there's same-sex attraction which is the lgb and then there's the cross-gender attraction which is when you're attracted to being the other sex you know which is the main cause of the t and a main cause of common cause of the Q as well, you know, in the political coalition. And so when we talk about these gender-based sexual orientations, it's, it's really interesting that they kind of, it can be hard to tell the line between the two. Like sometimes it can blur, um, even though they're, they're, these impulses are ultimately opposite in gender and direction. You know, if someone has same-sex attraction, that's the opposite gender and direction from attracted to being the other sex, you know? And so there's just this really weird situation where there's these two types of queer that co-mingle and people have not been able to tell them apart because it's hard mm -hmm. to tell where one ends and the other begins. It's mm -hmm. a good point. Yeah. Just like, yeah. <laughs> The different paths to gender dysphoria, different paths exactly. to, to same sex attraction. Yeah. Right. And yeah. there's different, yeah. there might be different paths to um, autosexuality too. You know, like the erotic target location error theory is the leading theory. 
as far as I can tell, it's going to be the leading theory for a long time. I don't see anything that can really compete with it. But I, I think it's important to keep our minds open to the idea that there might be different etiologies of autogynephilia or autoandrophilia. And so there, basically this is a whole other level of like, you know, there's different ideologies of same-sex attraction and then you go deeper and it's like there's even different mm -hmm. ideologies of like homosexuality or autoheterosexuality itself. Yeah, it's been fascinating. I, I, some of the some of the gay men who historically, you know, have admitted that they they really have disliked and felt uncomfortable with gender nonconforming gay men, you know, the more effeminate gay men, and now are coming to the realization that they actually have AAP and that that was maybe the driver of their, you know, I need to be really masculine. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so you basically bashed all these gay guys that were just gay and they didn't have AAP. <laughs> Yeah. And there's also something to be said for the fact that if if they're attracted to men, they're likely attracted to masculinity itself. And so they'd mm -hmm. want to be that thing because that is to their brain what has sexual worth, you know. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to uh, to bring up, I think this is the last on my list and uh, that I kind of really want to talk to you about is what I because uh, again, I, I love your book. I hope so many people read it, um, but I have one bone to pick with you, um, other than yeah. the, the, <laughs> the 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 putting emphasis on on uh, the sentimentality that is, uh, uh, or the romanticism that is more the case with female sexual orientation. Um, but uh, and I don't think you really touch on this much in the book, but the 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 rod the ROGD phenomenon, and um, I've seen heard you heard you talk about how like you know you you obviously see the HSTS AGP. You know, like that that the those two exist in both sexes or a a yeah anyway autosexuality, um, and I agree with you, um, but you're trying to ascribe that model to the uh, the the the, the Rajdi phenomenon, and I I don't think that that's what we're seeing at all. I think yes, some of those girls absolutely are going to be AAP, and some of them are going to be HSTS, just like since you know uh, the beginning of all this. Um, but I think what's the, I think the vast majority of those girls are just normal heterosexual girls who've been caught up in a a political fad that that gives them you know a sense of, of personhood and a sense of community and a sense of righteous you know self righteousness a cause and whatnot it's it's a, it's group affiliation it's all those things and their attraction to the idea of being a it's not they're attracted to the idea of being gay men. It's that they're girls who are attracted to boys. And if they're trans, that means they're like, that means that they're a, a trans boy who likes boys is how it's not. It's the root of it isn't AAP. The root of it is normal heterosexual teenage girls um, conceptualizing their romantic attraction within the framework that they've come to put themselves in. Um, I think that's one piece of it. I think another big piece of it is the appeal of like the, the, the slash erotica, right? The male, male, male pairing erotica that a lot of these girls yeah. uh, create and, 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 and consume and whatnot. And I think a lot of that originated from absolutely autoandrophilia, no doubt about it. But I think the vast majority of young girls, young women who consume that stuff are doing so because it's, it's safer. There's they're afraid yeah. of, of of heterosexual like of actual men, right? And 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 they're actually and actually the the heterosexual dynamic that they would be in, you know, as a girl in a relationship with a boy or whatever, you know, talking about young adults mainly, um, and 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 that that whole kind of genre of of male male love is their way of kind of projecting themselves 
like their way of accessing sexuality in a very safe way that's kind of removed from themselves. It's also it's also um, entirely um, ec uh, what's the word? Um, it's equal. That's not what I'm after, but it's egalitarian. Um, yeah, egalitarian. Yes, in a way that yeah, they they're on the same level. Exactly. Yeah, and I think I think yeah. I think much of that kind of saying that. Yeah, that that kind of male male erotica that you would interpret as AAP is really just a is just a normal projection of a teenage girl trying to access sexuality in a yeah I, I think in, it's in a way that feels safer. Yes, and, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I I want to figure that out, like if that is the case. And I think an important part of figuring that out is to to look at you know trans men, female to male transsexuals, and say. How many of you are homosexual ideology? How many of you are auto heterosexual ideology? And then figure out the look at the remaining ones that don't fit in and see how they compare, you know, because like, well, maybe I'm a bit um, bullish on thinking that AAP is the most common cause of female to male transgenderism. I think ideology um, is the most common cause of female to male transgenderism so, currently. So you think like ROGD right now is currently over 50% of cases of that transition yes absolutely that's my hunch too uh, yes yeah. i do yeah 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 i think i think that the, the situation with the girls is very very different it's um yeah they're, they're not they're not motivated sexually like like it's just not it's not a sexual thing for for most girls and i think and and the, the phenomenon that we're seeing is a social contagion that has nothing to do with these girls actual sexuality or gender identity it's just it's just a social category to belong to right. which is why it's so why it's so much more alarming uh uh to me that i mean i know a lot of these girls personally these young women personally and they do not have hsts or aap they have and they're taking hormones yes and had top surgeries and and they're not and they don't regret it there's no way that they couldn't but you don't you don't uh, you don't uh gender wider lens had a great episode on this is like how how we deal with regret and a lot of times when you've made an irreversible decision that you can't go back on you right, don't you don't question it's not, it. it's not it's not yeah it's not a case of do i regret like you don't examine that you just you just double down and yeah. you 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 propagate the ideology that got you where you are and i think that's that's what we're seeing is we're seeing a multi-level marketing scheme of young women who were hurt by the same multi-level marketing scheme. Like, I think that's what we're mostly seeing. Yeah. That's yeah. something I disagreed I mean, with uh, Michael Bailey in his talk with fair recently. Was to, there was a question that came up about um, the influence of pornography in all of this. And he was basically saying, well, pornography doesn't change or create sexual orientation. It's just an illustration of sexual orientation. And I, I mean, I do agree with that to some extent. I don't think someone would become go from being a heterosexual man to a homosexual man just because he watched gay porn. But I do think socially and psychologically porn is having an impact on young people. I mean, I've heard both young, young girls and I mean, girls, teenagers and young, young women and very sensitive, emotional boys say they were absolutely terrified by male sexuality. Like male sexuality is as ill as, illustrated in pornography and pornography is so easily accept accessible to anyone that has a cell phone. I think they really get terrified with just this, what they see is this like monster of, of aggressive male sexuality and, and males not wanting to, to unleash that in themselves and girls not wanting to be 
but they, you know, kind of perceived as themselves as the victim of that raw male sexuality. Yeah, it's intimidating probably to them to to see that the pornography that's out there and then think I have to play any one of these roles that I'm seeing here. Yeah, because <laughs> like, I mean, pornography is like a is like a total unleashing of male sexuality without any social mediation, right? I mean, in reality, when we are in love and married and in relationships and dating, and I think that rawness of that male sexuality gets gets kind of tampered by social norms and and love and relationships whereas pornography well, is sexual just, it's just all out on, well, on display you know. yeah. yeah it's just all yeah. out on display right so it's it's not a very i mean it's realistic in the sense that yeah i mean that is kind of male sexuality in its full-on exposed form but that doesn't mean that that is how it gets played out in every heterosexual relationship so it's a real distortion in a way of right yeah yeah i i do want to figure out the rgd thing um i i yeah like i said i didn't go into it deep into my book because i i personally feel that the evidence for aap existing is more established than for rgd um but i also when i do look at the demographic the sheer numbers of females transitioning now it does it does vastly outstrip what you'd expect um based on you know like females are homosexual or auto heterosexual at about half the rate that males are right so if it was just if it was strictly proportional that's to true the, of homosexuality too isn't it right yeah yeah sounds about right yeah yeah both of these like males have these about twice as often so if it was just these orientations without any social influence we would expect there to be about twice as many um trans women as there are trans men right and that you it used to be similar to that it was like a three to one ratio actually mm -hmm. but you know, in recent years, it flipped. And there's just so many females transitioning now. And it seems that the the non homosexual ones are the fastest growing subset of them. Like when I compared the the reported sexual orientations between the National Transgender Discrimination Survey of 2011, and then the US transgender survey of 2015. When I when I did the the typological sorting of non-homosexual and homosexual of the two sexes and broke it down into four groups. I found that um, the between 2008 and 2015, between these two surveys, um, the female proportion of total transistors had had gone up nine percent, and and the males had gone down, you know, nine percent, and basically all the gain in the females was among the non-homosexuals in terms of the overall proportion of trans people like the the non-homosexual trans men are the fastest growing subset as far as i can tell yeah because because most girls are non-homosexual exactly but that doesn't, right but it doesn't but it, and most girls are also non-auto auto heterosexual right it right? doesn't mean they're aap yeah. but it, right. it's also like, I think it's all the more important that we check for that because to rule out, to find out how many of these aren't either of the two types, because I think that's how we figure out how many are ROGD, like completely separate from the sexual causes by just figuring out how many are actually caused by the sexual causes and then look at the rest. Um, See, and I feel like it should be approached uh, almost entirely differently because I feel like with girls, with, with young women, 
uh, with females, let's say adolescent females is the, is the demographic we're really talking about here. Um, I, I would think the, the, the more interesting question is how many of these are motivated by anything internal? And I think that figure is very small. Right. And right. so whether, yeah. it, you know, be it, be it, you know, a gender dysphoria or sexual orientation, like, or, you know, the amalgamation of the two or whatever, I think that that figure is very small. I think the majority of these girls are um, identifying as trans boys or non-binary for a myriad of social reasons. Aaron, I think you're bringing up the porn thing is, is, is a major contributor is like, they do not want to be, so it's not just ju just the, just how like they're exposed to porn at like, you know, nine, 10 years old, you know, like they don't even know what sex is. And yet they're seeing, you know, the most, yeah, just, just this really, really kind of aggressive and often demeaning and just like it, it's it's not something that a, a young girl is going to be like oh great i can't wait to have a boyfriend you know like yeah. she's not going to think that she's going to be like how the fuck do i not get myself in this situation you know and i think i think transitioning out of of being the target of of sexual sexualization is going to be a greater greater uh, uh motivator for transition um, but that that's one of the i think that's one of the major motivators is is transitioning as as a decoy to hide um and uh that 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 actually would be an internal motivator i i, I suppose um but uh but the greater motivator i believe is still the ideological one is still girls in these massive bubbles of hyper woke online spaces where being anything cishet is you know a crime it's the worst yeah. yeah, yeah. And all you have to do is yeah. change your pronouns to they, them. When that no longer means anything, you know, you go on a low dose of testosterone, you know, and, and suddenly, you know, it's like it's a it's a slippery slope. Like the trans identity is like a it's like a conveyor belt. It's like, OK, well, I've done this thing. I guess I need to do this thing now. Like this is literally. They're not they're not con it's not. Um, it's it, it's not that it's subconscious, but they're not really examining the reason so much as I'm trans, so I do this. Right. You know, the yeah, next and... step is this. The next step right. is this, and it's it's all about first identifying as trans. There's no there's no internal there's nothing internal that leads to it. It's just being cishet is bad, being trans is good, and these are the things I have to do to be trans. Like it's. I think it Helena sounds, Helena Kirchner yeah. does a great job of articulating. Mm -hmm that pathway for herself yeah yeah and she's just there's just so many many hundreds of thousands of elenas this is this is the major story not not the actual people who are transitioning um to relieve something i mean th that's obviously still a major uh, issue and, and a talking point but i think the majority of what i'm what i'm calling an atrocity is what's happening to teenage girls in normal teenage development who are being medicalized because the people the psychologists who should be knowing what this developmental psychology looks like and what these uh these stages of life mean for a teenage girl anyway they're the same ones that are writing the hormone prescriptions and the surgery referral letters and that's what's just so atrocious to me yeah i sorry I, I we went to <laughs> hey, hey, yeah. Anyway, go yeah yeah no no you're on a roll today at <laughs> 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 <had> a list <laughs> yeah no i i am concerned about how the the postmodern gender being plex like the gender religion how it's impacting girls because is it is being taught in schools and thus they just trust their teacher you know and everyone else is saying it so then they think oh this is what sex and gender is and then they get told that oh trans is this thing and then if you're trans that means you have to do you know the medical mm -hmm. stuff or mm -hmm. like it's kind of implied 
and yep. that that's why I think it's so important to have it be widely known the two known sexual causes of transgenderism yeah, so yeah. that these girls if they if they learn about these two types and then realize I'm definitely neither one of these then they can realize oh shit I'm actually not trans mm-hmm. and then that might help them exactly you know and it doesn't and it also helps take away the some of the prestige of trans within the you know the progressive subcultures there is like a cachet to that and i think it would help a little bit if it was just something that if people understood that like hey there's homosexuals and there's auto heterosexuals and neither orientation makes a person better than another person or worse it's just that there's just sexual minorities and um yeah and if you're not that it's fine but it it, it like it doesn't make you more special to be one of them mm-hmm. i think what it you know kind of what i was going back to what i was saying about sexual orientation being such a driver for how societies organize themselves um I think, you know, this whole thing, I mean, if it weren't for the fact that so many people were being harmed and damaged, it, it's it's such a fascinating study on on the different really primary powerful drivers of how groups and, and societies organize themselves. So I think what we're seeing, I think what we saw with those with gender dysphoria is the power of sexual orientation to drive behave social behavior. But I think with the teenage girls, we're seeing the power of groupthink and belonging to groups that the tribalism is another very powerful equally powerful, powerful to sexual yeah. orientation for girls mm-hmm. to belong right to to feel like they yeah belong to a tribe and i yeah. mean the history proves that right i mean groupthink as a driver for behavior has led to like riots and all kinds of weird behaviors right cults and conspiracy theories that certain ideas you know when they hook into your need to belong and hook in but i think these to the gender ideologies is hooking into very deep unconscious needs but different from sexual orientation needs but then they have to figure out okay how do i how do i now fit my sexual orientation into this mm-hmm. group think and this other driver 100 yep i think i think uh uh Phil, one of them um, is, is, is a kind of ear crowing at this from, sorry, but ma- very male brained, right? It's like, oh, it's got to be. I can't be, help you, it. You got right? <laughs> to be, it's got to be a sexual reason. Like, like it's, <laughs> the, the, you know, these, these drastic behaviors are, are driven by, sec- in, you know, internal sexual motivations. And um, uh, I think, yeah, with, 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 yeah, with, with females, certainly adolescent females, the social, social motivations are 10 times stronger uh, than sexual motivations. Yeah. Which is what Paul. Sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, something that I want to say is like maybe, you know, since I'm human, part of why I am like hesitant to think that so many of these transitions are just due to social contagion is that like just what an atrocity that would be. And it's like <laughs> it, Thank it's you. that's like, where I've been for six years. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, no, I it's like I don't, you know, there's a very real human impulse that I want that to not be true. And mm-hmm. and you know, so the like the autosexual theory I'm in favor of, it can clearly account for some of these transitions. You know, we're we're disagreeing yeah. about how yeah. much it counts for, but but it it's it's some. You know, there yeah. are like and you're, the, 
you've been you've been in like the the, the FTM spaces. And you're pointing out, you know, like like uh, stuff that that you know, like in, in FTM Reddit and whatnot. That's clearly motivated by autoandrophilia. You know, yeah. You like, it's search for the, the word euphoria. Yeah. Search right. for search for ghost boners or phantom boners, mm-hmm. phantom yep. dick. If you search for these search terms, you will find a lot of trans men online reporting that they experience phantom dicks. You know, often in like sexual situations, or that they experience gender euphoria from being treated as a man yep. or dressing a certain way. And when we see in the MTF subreddits them say that they feel gender euphoria, you know, we're thinking, oh, that's AGP, right? And so that's why I just think it's kind of logical to conclude that if the females are also saying they experience gender euphoria and it's into the same types of classes of stimuli, then maybe it's just the female analog of autogynophilia. And I do, yeah, yeah and I, I agree with is. you that I have heard I have heard trans men and and butch lesbians or lesbians in the past that have have said that they I, that's not something I've ever experienced that phantom phantom penis but right. I've, I've heard people talk about it for sure it does happen right and what do they say what sort of situations it comes up in or just that it happen has happened just that it happens um and I, I guess mostly in in like sex, sexual situations like right, if, exactly. if they're like if they're using if they're using like a prosthetic dick and they're this is getting graphic but if they're you know if they're getting a blowjob using a prosthetic that they actually they can, feel it. they can feel it. They say that they can feel yeah. it and they can actually have an orgasm from it. Yeah. And I think that I, I, I do believe that because I, I've tried to make sense of this phantom anatomy phenomenon. And as far as I could tell, it seems to be related to our brain's proprioception ability of like telling where our body parts are. Um, Cause you know, like the other kin, for instance, when, when they feel that they have, you know, people that identify as animals and such, when they feel that they have like a big tail or wings or phantom, you know, phantom wings or phantom tail, they report moving their body differently to account for the weight of such things and of trying to like unconsciously trying to like avoid hitting objects because, you know, their phantom anatomy would interfere with it. So they, there is this sense of like proprioception cross embodiment. Hmm. And so and yeah, I, I guess, I've heard of the, the, yeah. the autoandrophilia thing happening in non-sexual situations. We had a, we have a, a again a, probably a mutual of all of ours, and we had her on the pod very early on. Uh, Cynthia, she used to have uh, very. I, I'm not sure if she still does, but certainly when she was younger, she had like phantom penis in situations where it was like like it was like th- she thought it was embarrassing she's like oh no what if people see this you know <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. not sexual situation. It was very much like yeah. Anyway, so that that was that blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that happens too. That the 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 phantom shifts, the phantom anatomy, um, it they do it. It happens uncommonly often in sexual situations, but it can happen randomly at other times of life, and it can be so confusing, you know. Because like you're saying, there can be this girl that's like just trying to exist socially, and then she feels like she has a boner, and then she's like, "What right. do people see?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like a third grade or something too. It's like, oh no! Right? <laughs> Have you ever seen that study? Because you can you can trick that. Um, yeah, that that you know your body map. You, there are ways. The right hand illusion. Yes. Yeah, so, are you familiar with yeah. that study, Aaron T? Where they had they had yeah, like a method. rubber a rubber arm, and so there was like mm-hmm. this yep. blinder, and then they had the rubber arm, and then yep. and so all you can see is like the rubber arm, and then they're doing things to your actual hand, or is that how? No, they're doing things right. to the rubber arm, and you actually 
feel it th- feel it and, yeah they and cover a... they cover your right shoulder with a blanket uh, and so that and put you put your left hand on the table and they have this r- fake right hand on the table that's like going into your shirt sleeve where it's resting where your hand would be and then they brush both of your hands with little brushes at the, at the same time so that your brain sort of like syncs up that like oh both these hands are mine you know and then um yeah and then that fake hand becomes part of your body map temporarily mm-hmm. and one of the most interesting studies in my book I, I wrote a whole subsection on it in the furry chapter is is at a furry convention some people brought in furries and did this right hand illusion experiment with them and then compared how like when this illusion takes place um they sort of they have an inner sense of where their hand is and and, you know how much ownership they have over that hand and they can so they compared these furries experience to uh, a sample of people that were not furries you know just a general sample and they found that furries had less of a sense of ownership over that hand and that this lower sense of ownership over the hand was correlated with furry role play you know with the frequency and intensity of furry role play and um with other furry embodiment phenomena so basically the more they did furry stuff the less they identified with the hand and and also the less they thought of humans they also had more favorable sentiments of animals and thought less of humans you know the you know the less they that the um that the illusion worked on them interesting i I wasn't familiar with that body of research yeah i just i found it fascinating because um when i got into learning about trans species stuff and they talk about the phantom anatomy all the time um i realized that this phantom anatomy and also the mental shifts they talk about um that if like if this happens with trans species identity um and we see something similar happening with the gender identity where people experience phantom boobs and phantom dicks and things like that then maybe it's a similar mechanism causing them see and i'm, I'm kind of i don't know um the hand thing makes sense you know what it feels like to have a brush brush your right hand right and so like that to me is easy to not easy, but like you can understand, like you know what that sensation is. It's easy to imagine it's happening when it's not happening and you're just looking at it because you've you've felt that before, you know? It's like somebody who's never had a boner, like I never had a penis does not know, like it's, it's there's nothing to compare. Like you're not, there's no reference point. There's no memory of this feeling to superimpose on the current situation. Well, if they've ever seen a male have a boner, well, yeah, sure, but I, I don't know. Then, but like the, the the personal sensation, you know, it's like, yeah, I imagine you, you know, obviously you can think about it, and and but but to have it subconsciously happen and to have it, I don't, I don't yeah. know. I'm, I'm just thinking like it seems very different to have the sensation that you have a body part you have never had. That seems like different than um, like feeling the a sensation on a like a sensation that you have felt before and you're mistakenly having it now. Like, it does feel right. like a different. There is I some, don't think that they are different things. Yeah, there is some evidence that gender dysphoria is related to like a malfunction in that body mapping um, 
in that in that body mapping wiring there has been you know some some sort of investigation into that connection of body right. body ownership and gender dysphoria it's hard yeah. to say if that's a symptom or a cause though exactly and like i'm i'm pretty behind the theory that that the autosexuality is the ultimate cause of the the body mapping dysfunction because if you have this thing that's that makes you have the sensation of being the other gender in various ways and then that that will conflict with your reality of what your sex is and that'll create an incongruence between the two mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah for me for me it was i've talked about this a lot for my my primarily in my chest it was just like the opposite of phantom it was like this should not be like these should not be here you know it's very much like a like a foreign body part attached to me was the sensation i had right like your chest should have ended like at the at like right the flat part and that these this extra protrusions were just alien things that should not be there yeah right because normally when you have a body part amputated that's when you feel phantom sensation right and i never experienced phantom sensation having my breast removed because it brought it into alignment with how my body had already mapped my chest so for me it was like the removal of these just cancerous growths right that that were actually contrary to my body map yeah and i think that's a different type of phantom than the autosexual like when you're talking about like amputation phantoms I think the, that's a different cause than the autosexual phantoms. And no, so but I he's think saying it, after the body part's been removed, though. You think. Right. Um, yeah, like, like if my body had mapped having a body part like breasts, then having yeah. them removed could have created phantom sensations, right? Just like right, any, but it, but any amputee, but it didn't for me because my body hadn't mapped, um, hadn't mapped in a way that accommodated them. So having having them removed didn't create phantom sensations for me. Right. Yeah. It's yeah, I'd definitely like to know more about this, about like when like the diff basically the different ideologies of phantom sensations. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's clear that there's multiple roads to this sensation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else we want to go over? We've we've already elapsed an hour. We tried to keep them to about an hour. I knew we'd probably go over on this one, but I've really got to pee. <laughs> uh, um, uh, could I like for a few minutes, like explain yeah. the the book? Because yeah, I'm, yeah. So bad, I'm so bad. I'm so bad at promoting. Um, yeah. So okay, the book is called Auto Heterosexual Attracted to Being the Other Sex. It's about cross gender attraction. Most of us know about same sex attraction. This is about the other type of queer. This is about when you're attracted to being the other sex. It is straight, turned inside out. It's heterosexuality pointed at yourself. And I consider it the most common cause of transgenderism. And so I wrote this book, and I think it's important because people are getting surgeries without knowing which of the two types, main like classes of gender dysphoria they have. And even and there's also plenty of people that were like I used to be that are just privately confused about their gender feelings like why do I feel this way it doesn't make any sense and and it doesn't have to be this way they can just have it explained to them that hey you have your sexual minority here's what it is how it works there's nothing wrong with it you know make the choices that you think will lead to your greatest flourishing in life like to do that, it helps to understand what your actual situation is. And so, yeah, basically, I wrote Auto Heterosexual because I just wanted to 
help a lot of people stop being confused about gender and to try to reduce the ideology in conversations about transgenderism because people are fighting over their imaginary ideas of what the phenomenon at play here when there, there are known causes of this that are just not being discussed. And I also want to help the broader autosexual population with because there's you know people that experience trans species identity and are confused about it. There's people that experience trans race identity and everyone shits on trans race people, but I think they're fine. I think trans race is legit and um, that we should be nicer to them. And I, I want them to also understand there's nothing wrong with being attracted to being a particular race. Um, basically, I want a bunch of sexual minorities to understand their situation properly and accept themselves as they are without apology so that they can just be their strongest, best selves. And uh, I know I've been kind of uh, critiquing uh, you, your your theories and a lot of this, but if anybody's listening on the first the first time we had uh, Phil on, it was just to to praise the book because I I read it yeah uh, when you first gave it to me and uh, yeah I it's a it's a wonderful book it uh, certainly helped me <laughs> like I learned about myself uh, reading it and uh, yeah it's a it's a it's a yeah it's a really good book I was just today was my opportunity to be like oh but I also thought about this so right and I'm yeah. glad you did bring up that stuff because. Yeah, critique, sometimes critique's important. If someone's wrong, it's good to critique that to get to truth. Um, and I, you might be right that the social contagion stuff is a bigger role, um, but I, I'm, I'm glad that you personally found benefit in in um, my depiction of autoantrophilia because, and I'm glad that you came out too, because that takes chutzpah to to come out as, as one of these orientations for some reason. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, along doing the, these conversations, you get the impression that there's a good type of dysphoria and a bad type of dysphoria. Right. And I was like, I'll, I'll <laughs> own the bad type of dysphoria. They're all bad types. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's suffering. Like, let's yeah, try yeah. to reduce the suffering. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you yeah. so much uh, for being here with us again, Phil. It's always a uh, pleasure to talk to you. And everybody, uh, read Auto Heterosexual or Auto Heterosexuality Attraction to Being the Other Sex. I hope it flies off the shelves, Phil. I, I hope it does too. Yeah, it comes yeah. out this Pride, just, you know, very appropriate. June 13th, everyone, you can go to autohetbook.com to sign up for a reminder. You can also go to my Twitter where I've posted the first 12 and counting chapters. I'm posting the whole damn thing. I'll probably leave out the trans age chapter, but like, I'm going to post all the <laughs> other chapters. I'm going to post 35 of the 36 chapters um, to Twitter so that's accessible to everyone and so that it can foster public debate. And we'll link a master one below. Uh, yeah if you cool. can send that yeah 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 along with uh, the link to the website so okay cool. awesome yeah thanks for having me absolutely Take thanks care. thanks for joining us for this episode of the transparency podcast if you enjoy our content please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe if you'd like to make a donation follow the link to our paypal account on behalf of the gender dysphoria alliance thanks for your support <laughs>